0: on yeah all right well i love fall too can i have a piece of candy troy (laughs) it's great to be with you again my name is matt owens i'm the pastor of christ the redeemer quincy uh thank you for um being so supportive to our church plant in quincy we feel it in uh, a number of ways i feel your support thank god for you all the time Uh, i'm also thankful to be preaching through uh, the same uh series in first samuel as pastor troy Uh, He and I have had some great discussions about the texts as we've moved through. And so it's my pleasure to uh, preach on the next section, uh, 1 Samuel 25 and 26. I'm going to read 25 verses 1 through 9. I'm going to kind of summarize what happens in chapter 26. Uh, But give your attention now to the reading of God's word, 1 Samuel 25 verses 1 through 39. Now Samuel died. And all Israel assembled and mourned for him, and they buried him in his house at Ramah. Then David rose and went down to the wilderness of Paran. And there was a man in Maon whose business was in Carmel. The man was very rich. He had 3,000 sheep and a 1,000 goats. He was shearing his sheep in Carmel. Now the name of the man was Nabal, and the name of his wife Abigail. The woman was discerning and beautiful, but the man was harsh and badly behaved. He was a Calebite. David heard in the wilderness that Nabal was shearing his sheep. So David sent ten young men. And David said to the young men, Go up to Carmel and go to Nabal and greet him in my name. And thus you shall greet him. Peace be to you and peace be to your house and peace be to all that you have. I hear that you have shearers. Now your shepherds have been with us and we did them no harm. And they missed nothing all the time they were in Carmel. Ask your young men and they will tell you. Therefore let my young men find favor in your eyes for we come on a feast day please give whatever you have at hand to your servants and to your son David when David's young men came they said all this to Nabal in the name of David and they waited and Nabal answered David's servants who is David who is the son of Jesse there are many servants these days who are breaking away from their masters shall I take my bread and my water and my meat that I have killed from my shears and give it to men who come from I do not know where. So David's young men turned away and came back and told him all this. And David said to his men, Every man strap on his sword, and every man of them strapped on his sword. David also strapped on his sword. And about 400 men went up after David, while 200 remained with the baggage. But one of the young men told Abigail, Nabal's wife, Behold, David sent messengers out of the wilderness to greet our master, and he railed at them. Yet the men were very good to us, and we suffered no harm, and we did not miss anything when we were in the fields, as long as we went with them. They were a wall to us, both by night and by day, all the while we were with them, keeping the sheep. Now therefore know this, and consider what you should do, for harm is determined against our master and against all his house, and he is such a worthless man that one cannot speak to him. Then Abigail made haste and took two hundred loaves and two skins of wine and five sheep already prepared and five sayas of parched grain and a hundred clusters of raisins and two hundred cakes of figs and laid them on donkeys. And she said to her young men, "Go on before me. Behold, I come after you." But she did not tell her husband Nabal. And this, uh, and as she rode on the donkey and came down under cover of the mountain, behold, David and his men came down toward her, and she met them. Now David had said, "Surely in vain have I guarded all that this fellow has in the wilderness, so that nothing was missed of all that God, of all that belonged to him, and he has returned me evil for good. God do so to the enemies of David and more also, if by morning I leave so much as one male of all who belong to him. When Abigail saw David, she hurried and got down from the donkey and fell before David on her face, and bowed to the ground. She fell at his feet and said, On me alone, my Lord, be the guilt. Please let your servant speak in your ears and hear the words of your servant. Let not my Lord regard this worthless fellow Nabal, for as his name is, so is he. Nabal is his name and folly is with him. But I, your servant, did not see the young men of my Lord whom you sent. Now then, my Lord, as the Lord lives and as your soul lives, because the Lord has restrained you from blood guilt and from saving with your own hand, now then let your enemies and those who seek to do evil to, to my Lord be as Nabal. And now let this present that you have that your servant has brought to my Lord be given to the young men who follow my Lord. Please forgive the trespass of your servant, for the Lord will certainly make my Lord a sure house, because my Lord is fighting the battles of the Lord, and evil shall not be found in you as long as so long as you live. If men rise up to pursue you, And to seek your life, the life of my Lord shall be bound in the bundle of the living, in the care of the Lord your God. And the lives of your enemies he shall sling out as from the hollow of a sling. And when the Lord has done to my Lord according to all the good that he has spoken concerning you and has appointed you prince over Israel, my Lord shall have no cause of grief or pangs of conscience for having shed blood without cause or for my Lord working salvation himself. And when the Lord has dealt well with my Lord, then remember your servant. And David said to Abigail, Blessed be the Lord, the God of Israel, who sent, you this, who sent you this day to meet me. Blessed be your discretion, and blessed be you who have kept me this day from blood guilt and from working salvation with my own hand. For as surely as the Lord, the God of Israel, lives, who has restrained me from hurting you, unless you had hurried and come to meet me, Truly by morning there had not been left to Nabal so much as one male. Then David received from her hand what she had brought him, and he said to her, Go in peace to your house. See, I have obeyed your voice, and I have granted your petition. And Abigail came to Nabal, and behold, he was holding a feast in his house, like the feast of the king. And Nabal's heart was merry within him, for he was very drunk. So she told him nothing at all until the morning light, In the morning when the wine had gone out of Nabal, his wife told him these things, and his heart died within him, and he became as a stone. And about ten days later the Lord struck Nabal, and he died. When David heard that Nabal was dead, he said, Blessed be the Lord who has avenged the insult I received at the hand of Nabal, and has kept back his servant from wrongdoing. The Lord has returned the evil of Nabal on his own head. Then David sent and spoke to Abigail to take her as his wife. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Would you pray with me? Father, I pray that you would use your servant to preach your word uh, to the hearts of your people in the power of your spirit, and in Jesus' name, amen. This week, I had the challenging experience of uh, trying to feed baby food to our eight-month-old baby boy, Luke. Maybe some of you are in this category with me. Uh, It was challenging, frustrating, uh, because rather than just let me feed him, Luke gets so desperate for food that he tries to take the spoon for himself. And so every time I put the spoon in his mouth, he grabs it, and he holds on tightly. And if I pull it away from him, he cries. Uh, But when I allow him to hold it himself and suck it, uh, he makes a huge mess and he still cries because he doesn't get any more food from the spoon. From what I can tell, he naturally associates spoon equals food. uh, And therefore, he grabs the spoon thinking that the spoon will give him all the food he wants. Of course, what he doesn't realize is that it's not ultimately the spoon that feeds him. He's fed by my hand the hand of his Father. And I wonder if this is a picture of us grasping at what we think we need when we have a Heavenly Father who is gracious to provide what we really need at the right time. Pastor Troy said last week, he preached at Christ the Redeemer as well, uh, that waiting on the Lord, trusting our Heavenly Father, means not grabbing what the Lord already intends, has already promised, To give us. Like baby Luke, we're impatient. We naturally want to take matters into our own hands. And when we do, we make a sorry mess of things. Often resulting in tears. Last week, it was David who restrained himself and his men from killing Saul, who had been pursuing him to kill him. David will have a similar opportunity to kill Saul in chapter 26. And again, he won't take it. But first, he has to be taught a lesson here in chapter 25, not to take matters into his own hands, but to entrust himself to God who judges justly. It will take the hand of the Lord intervening and restraining him to teach him this lesson, lest he make a sorry mess of things. And so as we move through this story, we're going to look, and you can see my outline there in the worship guide, at the hostile insults of the fool The providential intervention of the wise, the just judgment of the Lord, and the decisive bloodshed of the Christ. First, the hostile insults of the fool. This chapter begins with the report of the death of Samuel, who's more or less receded from the narrative at this point. I'm drawing attention to it uh, for the the purpose of tracing the larger storyline of the book. Samuel dies, but he'll make one more appearance in the story. How might that be? Well, stay tuned for a passage uh, in two weeks that just barely missed uh, falling on Halloween. (laughs) In the second part of verse 1, we read that David, who just spared Saul's life in the cave, takes his men out into the wilderness. And in verse 2, we're introduced to a rich man uh, who seems to be in every way defined by his possessions. We're told of them before we're given his name. In verse 3, Nabal which is a Hebrew word for fool. Most scholars think that no mother would be cruel enough to give her child that name, so maybe it was a nickname or some clever pun on his actual name. Whatever the case, he seems to perfectly fit his name. And that's not just the narrator's opinion, but his servant's, David's, and his own wife's opinion. Now She's not the first woman to think her husband a fool and she won't be the last, but in this case, she's absolutely right. And we're given the opposite picture of his wife, Abigail, who's described as discerning and beautiful. As the feast day approaches, David sends his men to Nabal to speak peace and humbly requests that he share some of his food with him and his men. Since David's men have been in the fields with Nabal's shepherds, and rather than attack them and take what they want of their animals, they've actually defended and helped them. This is later confirmed by Nabal's shepherds in verses 14 through 16, going further in describing how good David's men were to them. So David's simply asking that his generosity towards Nabal's servants be reciprocated. But Nabal replies, verse 10, Who is David? And who is this son of Jesse? He's throwing shade at his non-noble family. And he, and he apparently does know something of David, for he says, There are many servants these days who are breaking away from their masters. And then he demonstrates his uh, self-centered arrogance uh, with the repeated use of my. Shall I take my bread, my water, and my meat? I have killed for my shears and give it to men who I do not know, uh, wh- who come from I do not know where. An insult to David's men, who, if you recall, were outcasts in society. And the answer to his question uh, in God's law is yes. The law continually calls for generosity, hospitality, and love towards the stranger and the sojourner in the land. For don't forget, the Lord says, that you were a sojourner in a foreign land. Jesus goes even further, saying, Give to the one who begs from you, and do not refuse the one who would borrow from you. And whatever you wish that others would do for you, do also to them. And whatever you've done for the least of these, your brothers, you've done for me. But Nabal is a fool, and everything he says is insulting. So put yourself in David's shoes or sandals. He's done the right thing. And isn't it natural when you've done the right thing to feel an even deeper sense of moral outrage when you're slighted, insulted? Think about it. When you're driving, when do you feel the most angry? When does the road rage well up inside of you? If you're anything like me, it's when someone else is in the wrong and they, they look at you, they give you this look, or they, or they, they motion to you or, or signal to you in some way that you are the one in the wrong. And you want to say, how dare you? I'm a good driver and a good person. You, sir, are the one in the wrong but maybe you want to say something a lot more than that. You see, it's when you've done good and you're repaid evil, harm, for the good that you've done that you want to forget being good and take matters into your own hands. You may think, all in vain have I kept my heart clean and washed my hands in innocence, while the wicked, always at ease, increase in riches. That's Psalm 73. It's when you've done the right thing and are repaid with evil that you feel most morally justified to retaliate. I once heard a retired police officer say that uh, most violence that he came across in his career was due to a sense of moral outrage. Acts of violence were committed against those who, in the perpetrator's mind, had done something so bad that violence, even murder, was justified. That's the case for David here. After doing good to Saul and then to Nabal, this is what he receives in return? This insult? Both Saul and Nabal have returned evil for David's good deeds. So David's not gonna take it anymore. Every man strap on a sword, he says in verse 13, and straps one on himself. He's ready to wipe out Nabal and every last male servant to avenge this insult. But then his hand is restrained by the providential hand of God, raising up and sending Abigail to intervene. So let's look next at the providential intervention of the wise. In verses 14 through 17, one of Nabal's servants goes to Abigail for help. And in verses 18 through 20, Abigail gathers all the food and wine that David and his men need and lays it On donkeys to be sent to David when she sees David verse 23 she bows on her face at his feet and gives this humble bold insightful incredible speech beginning in verse 24 in which she is willing to assume the guilt of her house asks him to ignore her foolish husband and receive her gifts and she comes not primarily to preserve her household but as the Lord's instrument to restrain David. She says this in verse 26. The Lord has restrained you from blood guilt and from saving with your own hand. We don't know how Abigail knows so much. She seems to be aware of David's situation with Saul. In the previous chapter, David is the one who restrains. But here, David is the one who needs to be restrained. Two closely connected verbs are used. Uh, Four times here, translated restrained or kept or kept back. Used of both the Lord's action and Abigail's action towards David. Restraining him, keeping him back. He's practiced restraint when it comes to Saul, the anointed king. But he doesn't apply the same restraint here. He's ready and willing to destroy Nabal and all his male servants when the Lord has not called him to do so. Now Nabal, foolish as he is, is not David's enemy. He's an Israelite, descended from Caleb. Abigail's intervention essentially keeps David from becoming like Saul. Instead of taking salvation into his own hands and getting blood on his hands, she enables him to still be able to say when he becomes king, says Psalm 18, According to the cleanness of my hands, the Lord rewarded me, for I have kept the ways of the Lord and have not wickedly departed from my God." It's true, but it's because of the Lord's gracious intervention here. Abigail doesn't want vengeance and violence to mar David's legitimacy to serve as God's king or grieve his conscience. Vengeance belongs to the Lord, and this is true throughout the scriptures. Now there are times, uh, in the Old Testament especially, when the Lord calls his people to execute his judgment on individuals or nations. But it is not for us to avenge ourselves, to take matters into our own hands, as David is about to do. Abigail goes on to say, David, you are fighting the Lord's battles, and the Lord will surely make you king, give you a house, and fight for you. And so David receives here not only merciful restraint, but a fresh reminder of God's promise to him. She's basically saying, since the Lord is going to make you king, you don't need to grasp it by your own hand and get blood on your hands from this personal insult from a fool. Left to himself, David would have messed this up. But Abigail is the Lord's stop sign, graciously placed in David's path. And I wonder how often have we, especially if we find ourselves in a desperate place like David does, Especially if we've been insulted or slighted. How often have we been ready to abandon our beliefs and principles and commit some grievous sin? Maybe revenge, violence, or maybe sexual sin. Or something dishonest. We were ready to go through with it, but the Lord kept us back. Our hearts would have allowed us to do it but the circumstances, providentially, would not. God is so often gracious to intervene and restrain what we would later regret in ways that we sometimes later recognize and in many ways that we never see. One commentator, I know uh, Pastor Troy and I both greatly appreciate, uh, his name is Dale Ralph Davis, uh, puts it like this, the text teaches us how the Lord rescues his servants from their own stupidity, how he restrains them from executing their sinful purposes, how sometimes he graciously and firmly intercepts us on the road to folly. What loving hands construct the roadblocks to our foolishness. What mercy sends frustration to our purposes. What kindness builds hindrances in our path. The Lord providentially intervenes by sending Abigail to speak the Lord's words of wisdom to David. And to David's credit, he receives them. Rather than turning on her, rather than being too proud, she was taking a great risk, interposing herself. David even says in verse 34 to Abigail, the Lord restrained me from hurting you. Rather than turning on her, David blesses first the Lord, then Abigail, then receives from her hand, she had provided for his men. And so when we're desperate, when we feel slighted, insulted, we need to be willing to receive God's word from his people whom he sends in our path. As, as Bob said, we're not alone. We'll be tempted not to hear the person God sends to speak his word to us out of self-pity, or out of self-justification. But as is the case here, God's word and promises are exactly what we need in those moments. The Lord's intervention through Abigail's boldness actually reverses the flow of this story. As we've seen for a few weeks now, David has had opportunities to fast forward through all the waiting, to skip all the suffering, to take justice into his own hands, become king then and there. But what kind of king would he be? He would be a king with blood on his hands. A king like Saul. A king like the nations. And since violence breeds further violence, inevitably this act would have come back around not only to haunt, but to bite David. The Lord's Providential intervention through the wise Abigail saves David from so much trouble and reaffirms him in not harming Saul when he has another chance in the next chapter. So let's look next at the just judgment of the Lord. Abigail then returns to Nabal, who's feasting like a king, verse 36. He gets very drunk, and Abigail waits until the next morning when all the wine had drained out of him, to tell him what she's done. And it says, his heart died within him, and he became as a stone. Now, there may have been a medical cause for this, but the scriptures are more concerned with the primary cause, which is that the Lord struck Nabal, verse 38, and he died. David's response to Nabal's death in verse 39, uh, to bless the Lord, it's not a polite one, uh, I think of the scene, a scene in uh, Seinfeld where they celebrate the death of someone they don't know because it means a new apartment for Elaine. <laughs> but this is different. David receives this news as a sign that the Lord, who kept David back from working salvation by his own hand, will indeed avenge. That the Lord will judge justly, so that David does not have to take matters into his own hands. What David was restrained from doing, the Lord did. And so you might ask, what's the difference? Well, it's this, that there's only one all just, all good, all wise judge. And it's not you. It's not me. His judgment, not ours, that's an important distinction. When you feel morally justified to act vengefully, and I don't just mean through violence, there's plenty of other ways to get back at people. Maybe the most common way we do it subconsciously is by gossiping about those who've hurt us in some way. But when you feel morally justified to get back at somebody, ask yourself a couple questions. First, am I without sin? And second, is this person who I Consider an enemy, at least in the moment, this person who's wronged me. Are they God's enemy? Or are they made in his image? Are you, sinful and flawed as you are, able to know what they deserve? Or what you deserve? After all, as as, uh, Miroslav Volf puts it, in a world so manifestly drenched in evil, everyone is right in their own eyes. We read in Romans uh, 12, starting at verse 19, Beloved, never avenge yourselves, but leave it to the wrath of God, for it is written, Vengeance is mine, I will repay, says the Lord. To the contrary, if your enemy is hungry, feed him. If he is thirsty, give him something to drink. Do not be overcome with evil, but overcome evil with good. Now, we may be uncomfortable with uh, mention of the Lord's vengeance, the Lord's wrath. We may prefer to think of, God as a God of, of love only. But uh, as Miroslav Volf puts it helpfully, a non-indignant God would be an accomplice to injustice, deception, and violence. Volf is a, a Croatian theologian whose people faced ethnic cleansing in the 1990s. And he goes further, he says, the practice of non-violence requires a belief in divine vengeance. This thesis will be unpopular with many in the West, he says, but imagine speaking to people as I have, whose cities and villages have been first plundered, then burned, and leveled to the ground, whose daughters and sisters have been raped, whose fathers and brothers have had their throats slit. Your point to them, we should not retaliate? Why not? I say the only means of prohibiting violence by us is to insist that violence is only legitimate when it comes from God. It takes the quiet of a suburb for the birth of the thesis that human nonviolence is a result of a God who refuses to judge. In a scorched land, soaked by the blood of the innocent, the idea will invariably die. If God were not angry at injustice and deception and did not make a final end of violence, that God would not be worthy of our worship. David will reflect and wrestle with these things in the Psalms. David writes of the wicked fool. He could easily be describing Nabal in Psalm 10. He says in his heart, God has forgotten. He has hidden his face. He will never see it. Arise, O Lord. O God, lift up your hand. Forget not the afflicted. Why does the wicked renounce God and say in his heart, you will not call to account? But you do see, for you note mischief and vexation, that you may take it into your hands. To you the helpless commits himself. You have been the helper of the fatherless. Break the arm of the wicked and the evildoer. Call his wickedness to account till you find none. O Lord, you hear the desire of the afflicted. You will strengthen their heart. You will incline incline your ear to do justice to the fatherless and the oppressed, so that man who is of the earth may strike terror no more. We're often uncomfortable with language like break the arm of the wicked, what are known as imprecations. But the message of the imprecatory Psalms is that all emotions, even rage, belong before God. They should be brought to the Lord, who is just, who is good. And in bringing your desire for vengeance before the Lord, he may transform it. You may recognize how much your enemy is like you and give them grace. But regardless we are not to take matters into our own hands but to entrust ourselves to him who judges justly only he has the wisdom and insight and knowledge and righteousness to judge justly Miroslav wolf again writes without entrusting oneself to the god who judges justly it will hardly be possible to follow the crucified messiah and refuse to retaliate when mistreated the certainty of god's just judgment at the end of history is the presupposition for the renunciation of violence in the middle of it. It's faith in the Lord's righteousness that frees David from taking matters into his own hands, here and in both instances with Saul, before and after this story. It's what enables David to write, this is Psalm 37, Commit your way to the Lord, trust in him and he will act. Be still before the Lord and wait patiently for him. Fret not yourself over the one who prospers in his way, over the man who carries out evil devices. Refrain from anger and forsake wrath. Fret not yourself, it tends only to evil, but the evildoers shall be cut off. Those who wait on the Lord shall inherit the land. In just a little while the wicked will be no more, but the meek shall inherit the land and delight themselves in abundant peace. Jesus quotes this in the Beatitudes. The meek are those who wait for the Lord, trust in the Lord, who don't take matters into their own hands. David waits on the Lord, trust in him to act. And David will inherit the land, the kingdom, as the Lord has promised. And David probably received Nabal's land through his marriage with Abigail, of which we're told at the end of this passage. So let's look at the final point, the decisive bloodshed of the Christ. In this passage, David is tested. He's tested in the wilderness. Israel was also tested in the wilderness and failed, just as Adam had failed. David does pass his temptation in the wilderness, but only because of the Lord's intervention, sending Abigail. David's temptation, again, is to fast forward to glory to skip all the suffering. His temptation is to take the throne without all the waiting, without all the pain. And Jesus was also tested in the wilderness. His temptation was also to take the throne without all the pain. Jesus had the opportunity to skip all the suffering and he didn't take it. Looking at the example of David, by the witness of the Spirit, he knew that the true anointed king, the true Christ, would not only suffer, but must suffer. As we considered last week, as Pastor Troy brought in from First Peter 2, Jesus committed no sin, neither was deceit found in his mouth. When he was reviled, he did not revile in return. When he suffered, he did not threaten, but continued entrusting himself to him who judges justly. Jesus, the true and greater David, the true anointed king, is the ultimate example of the unjust sufferer. He always did the right thing and was slighted, insulted, met with evil, hostility. He refused to be sucked into the never-ending cycle of violence, but rather he overcame evil with good, even at the cost of his own life. By the cross... Jesus breaks the vicious and never-ending cycle of vengeance and violence by absorbing it onto himself. Just as Abigail's bold act of intervention reversed the flow of this story, Jesus, who's also the true and greater Abigail, intervened, interposed his precious blood, saying, as Abigail said, "'Let the guilt of my people fall on me alone.'" And so reverse the flow and course of the story of human history. For we read on in 1 Peter 2. He himself bore our sins in his body on the tree that we might die to sin and live to righteousness. By his wounds you have been healed. Unlike David, Jesus would have been perfectly just in coming into his kingdom with violence and bloodshed. He was the the just judge. But that would have been bad news for us, because it would have meant our bloodshed. The blood of all who had wronged him, all who had sinned against him. But the true anointed king, the true Christ, instead came and shed his own blood in our place. So that his kingdom is good news for sinners. David's temptation was to grasp his kingdom through bloodshed. Jesus resists this temptation. Jesus does come into his kingdom through bloodshed, but the blood that he shed was his own. His salvation and reign is not worked by the sword. He tells Peter to put his sword away. His salvation and reign are brought about by his wounds. Jesus does not work salvation by his own hands, except that he takes the nails in his hands. And so he says to us what the prophet Isaiah had said hundreds of years before, I will never forget you. Behold, I have engraved you on the palms of my hands. So when we are wronged, when we are mistreated, when we are spoken ill of, may we consider him who endured from sinners such hostility against himself, it's Hebrews 12:3. Consider him who endured hostility from nabals, from fools, though he had done no wrong, so that you may not grow weary or faint-hearted. And trust yourself into his hands, his strong and loving hands that were scarred for you. He's equipped us with all the resources to forgive, and forgiveness breaks the cycle of vengeance. Would you pray with me, Lord? All that we have needed, Your hand has provided. Your hands, scarred for us, have provided all that we needed. Lord, would we uh, would we know that deeply down into our soul? Would we dwell on that when we are insulted, when we are wronged, when we are uh, tempted to take uh, matters into our own hands? Lord, and teach us to cry out to you. Teach us to bring all of our uh, emotions to you in prayer as we see the psalmist doing. And teach us to pray as Jesus taught his disciples.